0: Welcome to Liquor and Liqueur Connoisseur, where I drink, discuss, and discover the world of distilled spirits. I'm your host, Matt Burchard. This is episode 17, and I'm drinking Trambouille. Liquor and Liqueur Connoisseur as a podcast was created as an excuse for me to keep a New Year's resolution to myself where I would drink more. For each episode, you should expect that I'll be well-researched and educational, also entertaining and consistent in my reviews. I chose to feature Drambouille on this episode because I like sweet, I like whiskey, and what's not to like about Drambouille? I have a standard 750 milliliter bottle of Drambouille here. It is 40% alcohol by volume, making it 80 proof. And Drambouille is a Scotch Whiskey Liqueur. It retails around $42. Let's open this up. It's got some shrink wrap plastic at the top. I'll take off. fresh bottle for this tasting and Drambouille has a proper stopper. So let's give it a pop. (laughs) Nice. And I'll give myself a pour. I'm using my trusty nosing glass for this tasting. It's a tulip-shaped glass that allows the spirit to be swirled around quite easily. The aromas collect up at the top so you can get a good nosing of it. In the glass, it's a nice golden color. Looks like a whiskey. For the nose, let's try. (coughs) Oh, ah. Don't know why, but I burned my, a lot of the uh, ethanol, the alcohol vapors, quite strong. It's only a 40 proof spirit, which surprised me. Maybe I'll give it another whiff. Yeah, still really pronounced uh, alcohol vapors, but I do get a nice kind of a... What's the the flavor I'm smelling? I'm struggling a bit with the nosing to get past the, the burn. I swirled it up in my glass, and I don't know if i overly aerated it, but um, it's kind of settling down a bit. And I'm picking up some spice and a little bit of honey, perhaps, but yeah, not a really pronounced nose. So let's give it a taste. On the palate, you get honey flavors. It's very thick uh, from a mouthfeel standpoint the heather honey listed on the label is pronounced i also get a good kick of spice i first registered this maybe as like a bit of alcohol or ethanol burn but it's more of a spice i think actually flavored into the spirit and then i don't know some other traces of some herbal elements but it's very good in my opinion it fits my palate profile it's sweet the the spice was unexpected though It reminds me of a spicy Baron Jaeger, actually, as far as mouthfeel in the initial flavor, but with, like I said, some spice added in at the back end and some other herbal flavors that Baron Jaeger obviously lacks. Ah, That's nice. It's got a good kind of lingering aftertaste after I've swallowed it. I just am left with um, a honey smoothness on the palate, so that's good. I'm eager to share the history and backstory of Drambuy with you. The bottle itself has around the neck, it says, since 1745. And then that's also on the front label. And then it says, the Isle of Skye liqueur. A unique blend of aged Scotch whiskey, heather honey, herbs, and spices. But for the history, where do we start? So the label says since 1745 on it, but Drambui was in fact not commercially available until around 1893. But even then that was a really small batch cottage industry and commercially available may be a bit of a stretch. It wasn't until about 1910 that production was at any sort of scale with distribution where Drambui could be known to more than just a few locals. And in 1914, the Drambouille Liqueur Company Limited was formed in Scotland. But again, where do we start with this story? And I am excited to tell you the tale that leads us to Drambouille. A detail on the bottle I hadn't mentioned yet is around the shoulder above the label, it has pressed into the glass, Bonnie Prince Charlie's. And then below the label says Drambouille. So it says Bonnie Prince Charlie's Drambouille. So, who is Bonnie Prince Charlie, and uh, how do we have his Drambuy? And to do this story justice, we have to go way back into the 1600s and hang on, because there's a lot of English and Scottish history of the monarchy, and I'm going to be paraphrasing quite a bit, because it's all set up to the story of Drambuy to get to an understanding of who Bonnie Prince Charlie was. So, in 1685, James II, who was king of England, Ireland, and Scotland, converted to Catholicism when he ascended the throne vacated by his brother. In so doing, he declared that his subjects could practice whatever religion they wanted. James II had a son in 1688 named James Edward Stuart. He was a clear heir to the throne at the time. In the same year, Protestant and political allies who were fearing a loss of power under what was a new religiously free monarchy essentially staged a coup. They took an unprecedented step of inviting a Dutch Protestant, William of Orange, to invade and seize power. William of Orange, of course, did invade, and James II fled to France to exile. The English Parliament, who had helped orchestrate the coup in the first place, then in 1689 declared that with James II fleeing to France, he had abdicated the throne. Thus his son James Edward Stuart was no longer in line to be king. William of Orange takes the name William III, and he's declared king of England, Ireland, and Scotland, along with James II's daughter Mary, who William had married in 1677, who was thus declared queen. So yes, James II was ousted by his son-in-law. William and Mary ruled together for a number of years until Mary died, then William ruled alone until his death in 1702. The couple never had children, so succession of the throne passed to Mary's sister Anne. Queen Anne, of course, was also a daughter of the deposed James II, but Queen Anne had 17 pregnancies with no surviving children. And without an heir, the English Parliament decreed via the Act of Settlement in 1701 that succession of the throne should exclude Catholics, which James II was, and thus Anne's Protestant second cousin George, with the title of Elector of Hanover, would succeed Anne to the throne. This was a big upgrade for George, because at the time he was 53rd in line of succession. So here again we have the Parliament orchestrating a coup of sorts. George took the throne in 1714 as George I. He was succeeded by his son, George II, in 1727, who ruled until his death in 1760. So, George II sat on the throne in 1745, the year listed on Drambuy's bottle, and trust me, we're getting to who Bonnie Prince Charlie was. Coming up. Okay. We've got King George II sitting on the throne of England, Ireland, and Scotland, though at this point it was a combined British Empire as the United Kingdom had been formed on George's watch. But let's rewind a few decades in the story. James II exiled to France in 1688. His son was James Edward Stuart. When James II fled to France, he left many loyal supporters who didn't necessarily view William of Orange, nay William III, as their king. Divided along religious lines, many of these followers were known as Jacobites, and Jacobite coming from the Latin Jacobus for Jacob, so Jacobites were followers of King James. The Jacobite stronghold was Scotland, as the Stuart family, i.e. James II's family, had ruled there for more than 300 years since Robert II was crowned King of Scots in 1371. And bear with me, we're getting to Drambuie, I swear. So, the one-time infant heir to the throne of England, Ireland, and Scotland, James Edward Stuart, had his father declared to have abdicated when he's not even one years old. Even though some of James Edward Stuart's sisters, i.e. Queen Mary and Queen Anne, did hold the throne through marriage, actually just through birthright in Anne's case, James Edward Stuart was cut out. He grew up in exile, but he still had followers and he was still considered royal. He married the Polish princess Maria Clementa Sobieska. I'm mispronouncing that, I'm sure, but forgive me. Anyway, she was the Pope's godchild and in 1719 they were married via proxy he was actually in spain and she was in italy after having escaped imprisonment in austria and there's more to this story i invite you to go look it up but i'm trying to get back to drambui so the two of them obviously got together because in the next year 1720 princess maria gave birth to charles edward Stuart. None other than the Bonnie Prince Charlie. So much royal and political intrigue, but we're getting closer to Drambui. Charles Edward Stuart grew up in Rome, where his father's court had been given residence by the Pope. This is probably because of the goddaughter connection with his wife Maria. As Charles grew, his good looks led to his common title of the Bonnie Prince Charlie, and Bonnie is an old English adjective for attractive, so the attractive Prince Charlie. In 1743, when Charlie was 23, he was given the title of Prince Regent. This gave him authority to act in his father's name. He didn't waste much time asserting himself using his father's royal station, and unbeknownst to his father, he raised an army of some 700 French troops, and using an old French man-of-war and a much smaller frigate, sailed to Scotland with his troops and a dozen companions with the goal of reclaiming the British throne for his father. In route, the man-of-war tangled with a British warship and was badly damaged and had to return to France, but the frigate carried on with the Bonnie Prince aboard. They landed on the Scottish Isle of Erské in July of 1745. He continued onto the mainland expecting to raise a Jacobite army from the Scottish supporters. Many of the Scottish Highland clans did still favor the Stuart family over the Protestant rulers, King George II at the time and Bonnie Prince Charlie mustered up a purported 1,300 men to start what became known as the Rebellion of 45. He was successful in capturing Edinburgh, though the British retained the castle. Additional small skirmishes were won as he headed south, gaining followers and commanding some 6,000 men at this point. George II recognized the threat to his throne, though, and His son, the Duke of Cumberland, led six battalions of foot soldiers and nine squadrons of crack dragoon, which are just mounted infantry, but dragoon sounds a whole lot more menacing. This force sent by George II far outnumbered Bonnie Prince Charlie's army. Unfortunately for Charlie, he couldn't muster the support of English Jacobites, and he was forced to retreat when the two armies met. Charlie and his men were pursued by the Duke of Cumberland. Charlie fought his last battle in April of 1746 in what became known as the Battle of Culloden. Charlie had about 5,000 men who were exhausted, demoralized, and had a bad tactical position on the battlefield. The Duke of Cumberland, however, had fresh troops, numbering some 9,000. Charlie lost, and the Duke was brutal, slaughtering as many of Charlie's men as possible, earning the Duke of Cumberland the nickname the butcher bonnie prince charlie escaped the fray but with a bounty on his head equal to some 19 million us dollars today and the penalty for helping him was treason and death but not a simple death it was by hanging drawn and quartered i've got braveheart visions now at the end sequence with freedom if you don't know what being drawn and quartered are it's not good look it up but that was a high penalty for helping the bonnie prince charlie So I find it quite amazing that the Bonnie Prince was on the run for some five months and nobody gave him up. For 19 million, I probably would. That's a lot of money, especially back then. The pursuing Duke of Cumberland was brutal. He was torching highland homes and killing people suspected of harboring the prince. Charlie was eventually rescued in September of 1746 by a French frigate and returned to France where, by all accounts, he lived out the rest of his days in exile and became a drinker and womanizer. So... (laughs) <laughs> that's the royal history, and we have now the Bonnie Prince Charlie in Scotland in 1745, from which the legend of Drambui can take flight. It's widely reported that the Bonnie Prince had an elixir specially formulated for him by his apothecary. This was a highly concentrated tincture of essential oils, herbs, etc. The tincture was a cure-all. As many medicinal remedies of the time, it would not have been uncommon for a man of his status to have a special elixir made just for him. The tincture likely originated in France or perhaps Italy, but mostly its French accounts I'm finding as an origin of where the apothecary or his personal physician were from and it was most likely originally intended to be mixed with brandy. In Europe at the time, herbal liqueurs were always medicinal, so the Bonnie Prince's was indeed a cure-all. Historical records note that the prince kept a small bottle in a pouch from which he'd take a few drops each day to ward off any ills or for strength and vitality. It seemed to keep him healthy, at least it didn't seem to hurt during his campaign for the throne and the five months that he was running from the Duke of Cumberland. And during those five months of flight, he spent time on the Isle of Skye, where the clan McKinnon harbored him. With not much left to his name, but his good looks and personal elixir, legend says that Charlie gifted the secret recipe for the elixir to John McKinnon, the clan leader, as a thanks for helping him escape. However, Charlie may not have personally given the clan McKinnon the recipe, but nonetheless, the McKinnon clan received it, and they kept it safe. They passed it down through the McKinnons for generations. They made small batches for personal use and occasionally shared with some friends. And one such friend was a man named John Ross, who ran the Broadford Hotel on the Isle of Skye. Mr. Ross persuaded the MacKinnons to give him the recipe, and he proceeded to make a batch of the family liqueur to serve at the hotel. This was around the early to mid-1870s, about 125 years since the Bonnie Prince Charlie bestowed the elixir recipe upon Clan MacKinnon. John Ross's son, James Ross, took over the hotel from his father and reportedly improved or formalized the recipe for the elixir. The elixir was mixed by James Ross and his wife, Eleanor, and they used it to flavor whiskey, adding sugar, honey, and glycerin to the mix. One or two of the hotel patrons, though unnamed, are credited with naming the elixir, declaring it to be Andram Budesh, which is Gaelic for The Drink That Satisfies. The anglicized version of this is Drambui, and in 1893, James Ross registered a patent for the name Drambui. It's said that James Ross and his wife Eleanor made small batches to be sold to locals at the hotel. Unfortunately, James Ross died in 1902, and his widow Eleanor ended up selling the hotel and moving to Edinburgh in 1908 where her children lived. One of Eleanor's children knew a man named Malcolm McKinnon, who worked for Macbeth and Sons, a whiskey blender and wholesaler. Malcolm McKinnon was unrelated to Clan McKinnon, who had been guardians of Drambuie. It was just coincidental that was his last name. However, with Malcolm's connections in the whiskey trade, he knew a good thing when he tasted it and struck a deal with Eleanor to produce and bottle Drambouille for sale in Edinburgh. It was during this time, around 1908 to 1910, that the legend of the Bonnie Prince Charlie and the Isle of Skye was linked to Drambouille, with it being featured in advertisements for the liqueur. By 1914, through various dealings, Malcolm McKinnon became the sole owner of Drambouille and formed the Drambouille Liqueur Company Limited. In 1916, Drambouille became the first liqueur to be allowed in the cellars of the House of Lords, and Drambouille also shipped to officers' messes around the world as the First World War was in full swing. Heck of a time to start a liqueur company, it seems. But Drambouille survived the war, found an export market, survived prohibition in the U.S., survived another world war, and was always made according to the secret recipe in and around Edinburgh. Drambui was a family affair for a century. Malcolm McKinnon's wife, Gina, played an integral role, from personally collecting and concocting the herbs and oils to make the essence in the early years to later serving as chairman of the firm in the 1960s. family was heavily involved, with brothers, children, husbands, and wives all being involved throughout the generations. Gina McKinnon became a brand ambassador of sorts. Later in life, she traveled constantly promoting Drambui, she was awarded the Order of the British Empire in 1964 for her contributions to the British export market. In 2014, William Grant & Sons, another family-owned Scottish company, who are also owners of Glenfiddich and Tuala Mordu, which I featured on episode 10, acquired Drambuy for about 100 million British pounds. And as far as I know, they haven't really changed it. <laughs> but man, what a history. What a history to get to Drambuie. the... Isle of Skye liqueur since 1745. So, how's Drambouille made? Well, Drambouille is made with Scottish whiskies, so scotch, that range in age. Prior to William Grant & Sons buying them, Drambouille apparently held as many as 71,000 casks of maturing whiskey, which they had purchased as new spirits and aged themselves. I assume William Grant & Sons acquired this stockpile along with the purchase of the brand, but I can't be sure added to the scotch whiskey the secret herbal essence a highly concentrated tincture the kind of bonnie prince charlie's secret sauce so to speak Uh, this recipe has remained unchanged since 1908 when malcolm mckinnon perfected it in edinburgh the essence is added to the scotch whiskey to give drambui its flavor it's said that this Essence is highly concentrated and it just takes a small, small amount to a large volume of scotch to flavor appropriately. Some sugar and heather honey is also blended in along with a touch of glycerin to help bind the flavors and add mouthfeel. At least it was prior to 2014. Not sure if William Grant & Son production includes that, but prior to them acquiring the brand, that's how it was made. I trust, though, William Grant & Sons, a storied Scottish spirits family in their own right, they're going to be good stewards of Drambuie. They didn't buy it to change it, I'm sure. Today, only three people know the recipe, one of whom personally mixes each batch of Drambuy essence. So it's still a closely guarded family recipe. Just a different family has it now. Also, William Grant & Sons publishes nutrition information for Drambuie, and the notable thing is that an approximate one ounce pour, which is 30 milliliters to be exact, has just shy of 110 calories. My guess is it's the sugar. Okay, so what do you do with Drambuie? How do you drink it? What's it good for? I'd hazard a guess that if you've had Drambouille before, you've had it in a Rusty Nail. The Rusty Nail is the one and only Drambouille cocktail. They're pushing the Drambouille Collins now, but I don't think many bartenders would know what that is. They'd make you something like it. But the Rusty Nail, anybody's going to be able to pour for you. And the Rusty Nail is dead simple. It's equal parts Drambouille and Scotch whiskey of your choice, served with a twist. Some people have said that a rusty nail is just a way to dilute your Drambuie or adulterate your scotch. I prefer mine separately. Drambuie is also recommended to be served on the rocks. So in summary, what do I think of Drambuie? Well, I'll be honest, I did not expect to have such a royal tale of intrigue looking into this spirit. That surprised me, but it is kind of this tale that I could see playing out where Bonnie Prince Charlie tries to reclaim the throne that was stolen from his father. Uh, Whether or not the legend is true, who knows, but we have this herbal sweet scotch liqueur to thank. And I think it's pretty good. I honestly, it's not my favorite. The spiciness is a little, a little much for me. But it does have a good flavor, and I will definitely enjoy this bottle, but it won't be my first go to. So that's gonna do it for this long episode of Liquor and Liquor Connoisseur. Hope you enjoyed the history. I'm your host, Matt Burchard. Please subscribe and share. Show notes are on Liquor and Liqueur Connoisseur. You can also find the show on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, anywhere you get your podcasts. The show is on social media. I'm active on Facebook and Instagram. Please leave me your feedback. Get in touch. And if I mispronounce some Gaelic words, which I most likely did, please correct me if you're a native Gaelic speaker. And as always, thanks for listening.